I want to say again as we come to a close of this series of studies we've been having this weekend that I appreciate so much the invitation to come and be with you for this uh, series of studies on the question of division within the churches of Christ. And as already been mentioned by Greg, if you'd send an email to this address on the screen before you, would be glad to share the PowerPoints with you. And I'll get those out to you tonight if you'll send that to me as quickly as possible. I've enjoyed my stay here as uh, my t the time we've spent together studying. And I hope that something has been said or done to help you understand better these issues and these questions that we've been talking about. It's been a pleasure to be associated with Greg and Cindy this weekend. And um, I appreciate them so much for the work that they do in the kingdom, the stand they take for the truth. It's been a pleasure to be associated with all of you this weekend. This is the last and the final of four lessons that we've called the division within the Church of Christ. On Friday night, we talked about the history of the division, talked about the missionary society and the instrumental music controversy went back a hundred years before the controversy that really hit in, in the uh, mid-1900s. And then we talked about the college in the budget, which was after the turn of the century, of course, but in 1938 that was, became a real question and issue long before the orphan's home question was the real raging issue that we talked about on uh, Saturday morning. Saturday morning we talked about the orphan home question and the sponsoring church arrangement. But a little bit later in time, though it was already underway, it really became more of an issue uh, in the 60s and on into the 70s, and that's the question of the social gospel movement. And so that's what we want to talk about at this area, at this point. In the 60s and in the 70s, it began to be more evident that the church was getting involved in the social gospel. That involved a number of things. But let's define the social gospel. The social gospel involved a major shift, a great shift. A shift from the spiritual to the social. By the spiritual, we're talking about the fact that the gospel is God's redemptive message. We'll say more about that in just a moment. But the gospel is a message of redemption in Christ Jesus. And that was what the gospel was about. It has to do with salvation and preaching salvation and, and dealing with what God has done for man's salvation and what God would expect man to do in response to that. That was the gospel message. It's the power of God into salvation. But there was a shift away from the spiritual to the social ills of man and, and curing some of the social problems. Well, that even involved the questions that we've already discussed. The college being in the church budget was partly the social gospel. The orphan's own question was partly the social gospel. We'll lace those and tie those together perhaps as the lesson unfolds. So it involved this great shift from the spiritual to the social. The purpose of the gospel message, according to the social gospel, is that it's to improve the social circumstances of man. Now, the social gospel concept did not begin with the churches of Christ. When that began to come to play in the 60s and into the 70s, that's not where it began. It began in the 1800s with denominationalism, and we'll trace some of that here in just a moment. Time would forbid us to give a great deal of information about that, but it's not the beginning of that. Our brethren came along and picked up the concepts of denominationalism, as they often have, and began to carry them on as the denominational world has been doing. Well, the social gospel includes a number of things. It involved the church taking out of its treasury and supporting colleges. We talked about that on Friday evening. It involved the church being involved in school and daycare. And so we're not surprised when we saw those issues that we've talked about on Friday and Saturday, Friday night and Saturday morning. It's not surprising to find that there are churches of Christ that operate schools and daycare centers. It's not surprising that they have their fellowship halls, even their bus ministry. We'll come back to that a little bit later. The gymnasiums and their ball teams and what I call gimmicks to draw the crowd. Things that try to attract people and bring them in, everything from a banana split party to a grease pig chase. 
that brethren have put on to try to get people to come and attend the, the services and attract, attract members. That's all a part of the social gospel concept. Now let's talk about some of the history behind the social gospel. We've done that with every one of these issues, and that helps us to understand some of what went on, and we'll give some warning in view of that a little bit later. It was born into the denominational circles in the late 1800s. Protestant denominationalism began to see there were some problems of society that followed the Industrial Revolution. Some of the problems were the problems with crime had increased, poverty, inequality, drunkenness, prostitution, and on down the line. There were a number of social problems that they began to see, and so they thought perhaps that the churches somehow could be involved in fixing some of the social ills. Now their concept was not, let's go preach the gospel to people and and let us cause them to turn from their sin, and that'll take care of the crimes, and that'll take care of the drunkenness, and that'll take care of the poverty eventually. If we just preach the gospel to them, that's not the concept. The concept was that we need to be involved in fixing some of the social ills. Let me give you a quotation from Dr. David Harold. Brother Harold is a member of the church. This was a lecture that was given at Florida Christian College, it was called at the time, in March of 1960. Now, just a little tidbit about who he is. We recognize him as Brother Harold, but the religious world recognizes him as a great historian, so much so that when Oral Roberts was seeking someone to write his biography, he sought Dr. Harold out to do that. And so he's a historian that knows his history about church history and religious history. Pat Robertson did the same thing when he decided to run for president a few years ago, that he sought Dr. Harold out to come and write his biography and to do that. Well, he's a historian, and we're quoting him from a historical vantage point. Here's what this historian said. In the 1870s and 1880s, the leaders of American society suddenly realized that they were faced with overwhelming social problems. The Industrial Revolution in this country raised problems in business and political ethics, employee-employer relationships, economic competition, and the nature of poverty, and its remedy with the shock shocked many American social philosophers out of a well-worn complacency. No less serious were the social maladjustments connected with the unparalleled rise of high cities. Slums and drunkenness and prostitution, organized crime, juvenile delinquency, abject poverty, and all the other problems sprawling, filthy cities were convincing, re uh, convincing realities that demanded something to be done. So these churches began to look at that, and we're going to continue that quotation. There is a great problem in our society. This is in the 1800s. We're not talking about churches of Christ. We're talking about denominationalism began to see there was a problem. So out of this setting came the social gospel movement. Religious leaders were not at first, would, uh, were not the first to delve into the social ills, but in the late 1870s and 1880s, increasing numbers of them, almost in every denomination, began to offer suggestions for the solution of the new American social dilemma. So in the late 1800s, they began to say, the churches have some answer to the social ills. Not the gospel now, not preaching the gospel, but we're going to involve ourselves in the social ills. Well, that's a whole study within itself to talk about the background in the 1800s, but that crept into the Restoration Movement. You remember it was in the 1800s when we were dealing with some of the history of the Missionary Society, 1849, and the, uh, the instrumental music in 1859. Well, this is just shortly after that when the Social Gospel Movement begins to take place. So it crept into the Restoration Movement. Let's turn to Dr. Harrell again. He talks about how conservative denominations got involved in the Social Gospel and it began to creep into some of the... Some of the uh, uh, restoration movement. During the 1880s, the social gospelism had invaded the restoration movement. 
leaders of the disciples of Christ, still biblically conservative at this junction, such as Isaac Everett. We talked about him the other night. He was more, one of the more liberal folks that we talked about. Richard Bishop of Cincinnati, Frederick Power of Washington, D.C., participated in the earliest organized efforts of the social gospel leaders of the United States. So there were some in the Restoration Movement beginning to get involved in that. Well, let's move along from that. With that as the background, and I want to suggest to you that the issues of 1950s and the 1960s that we've been talking about since Friday night involve two major shifts. Don't get, I want you to keep these in your mind, these two major shifts that were made in the 1950s and in the 1960s. There was a shift from the spiritual to the social. That's what the social gospel involved. But all of these other issues that we've been talking about, whether the college in the budget or the orphan's home, are we talking about some of the other questions, it involved a shift from the individual to the church. So when you blur the lines between social and spiritual, and you blur the lines between individual and the church, we've got problems now. We've got big problems. And keep that in mind, because I want us to end on that note in a few moments, that that's going on among us. Some of that kind of shifting and blurring is going on among us. And we're headed down the same road that we're headed back in the 1950s if we're not careful. But now let's get a quotation from, this is interesting, that this is from William Bernowski. In 1965, he is writing a book called The Mirror of a Movement. This has to do with the Churches of Christ as seen through the Abilene Christian College lectureship. The Abilene Christian College was one that favored all of this institutionalism we've been talking about. But what's interesting is his take on this. And he said, although not directly involved with the social gospel tensions of the mainstream national thought, some basic questions of the larger debate were essentially the ones at stake at the, in the Abilene Tributary. What is the extent of the church's social responsibility? How can efforts at social betterment be related to the problems of individual salvation? Will the church forsake its spiritual purposes by becoming inordinately encumbered with the social services? Among churches of Christ, these infectious questions gathered, festered, and erupted into one bitter benevolent issue. In what way can the church scripturally provide the needs of widows and orphans? Now this was written interesting in 1965 from the vantage point of seeing the, the issues of the church through the Abilene Christian College lectures. What was going on in the lectures that tells us, tells us kind of the history of the church. And he said... They kind of got involved in this social gospel movement that finally erupted in this benevolent issue, such as the orphan's home, and that was, a, that was kind of a taste of this social gospel movement. Well, he goes on. He says the benevolent battle among churches of Christ then was very definitely, if indirectly, related to the social gospel war being waged in contemporary Protestantism. It was an outgrowth of the social gospel. The overtones of the social gospel movement endowed more sequestered conflict with a favor of the national relevancy, there is ample evidence that the lectureship was the Brotherhood's most forceful and continuing voice urging a, a broader concept of the church's social responsibility. Well, no wonder. I say amen to that. That's exactly what they were doing in 1938 on this very lecture program of Abilene Christian. They were saying, put the college in the budget. That's what they were saying in 1938. Later on, they would urge the church to put the orphans home in the budget. Later on, they would urge the church to involve themselves in other things. And so his point is, as you view the history of the church, they were getting involved more in the social gospel. That's the point I wanted you to see from that work from Benowski. Well, some of this started with fun and food among us when we started the, the issues in the 1950s and 60s among churches of Christ. That may not be where it all started in the 1800s, but by the time it began to be an issue among churches of Christ in the 50s and in the 60s and on into the 70s, 
It started with fun and food. For example, there were the fellowship halls. Not uncommon for a church to build a fellowship hall. Well, that doesn't sound so bad within itself until you know what a fellowship hall is. It had nothing really to do with biblical fellowship. That's not the concept of biblical fellowship. But a fellowship hall was a place where they would socialize. It's where they sat down and they have common meals. A fellowship hall would often have a kitchen. Sometimes it would be basically a gymnasium with a ball goal at each end. And so they have their fellowship halls, or family life centers, they call them now. They have their church kitchens. We'll talk more about the church kitchen in a, in a whole section in just a moment. They had their bus ministry. Now, the bus ministry was not a matter of providing transportation to people who needed transportation to church. But you don't see the bus ministry. That thing failed in, in this sense. Denominationalism tried the bus ministry, and it didn't do too well. And by the time they were ready to get rid of it and kick it out the door, our brethren picked it up and thought, let's try the bus ministry. And it didn't work any better for them. The bus ministry was a means of a gimmick of trying to get people to come. Quite often, churches would have a number of old buses that they'd buy from the school systems, old worn-out buses that they'd repaint. Nothing wrong with the buses within themselves, but they used the buses to go around and try to drum up just crowds of young children in hopes of getting them and their families ultimately to come to church. Sometimes putting money under the seat, offering money, offering prize, offering uh, uh, food, uh, something that would attract the kids to ride the joy bus to, to the church, and when they got them to church, perhaps maybe then their families would come, and that way we could convert people. Well, it didn't work too well. You don't find many churches around that have those joy buses anymore because it didn't work too well. But that was part of the social gospel movement. Well, then there was the gimmicks to bring in the crowd. By that, again, as I mentioned, it might be a, uh, a food thing that was offered. It might be a fun day they have. Or it might be something that's kind of wild and strange. As I've already mentioned, one church had a grease pig chase. So that one of the elders or the preacher would be trying to chase the uh, grease pig. And, and so consequently, that would bring a crowd in, they thought. And all of that was a part of this social gospel movement. They had a number of fun days. Let me give you an example of that. Here are some of the things that were going on. Here's the Ridgedale Church of Christ in Chattanooga, Tennessee. This was a number of years ago. And in their bulletin, they advertised something they call fellowship. There'll be an ice cream supper after church Sunday night, July the 29th. Come and enjoy the good ice cream and fellowship. Well, the Bible never uses the term fellowship in that sense. The Bible doesn't talk about fellowship in the sense of our, our socializing and enjoying one with the other. That's not how the Bible talks about fellowship. Now be careful with that term fellowship because some of us are using that term in that sense. And what I mean by that, I'll quite often hear someone, we'll sit down and all eat together. Isn't it good to enjoy this good fellowship one with another? Well, I thought that's what we were doing when we were in Bible class and when we were studying our Bible and we were worshiping God. That's how the Bible uses the term fellowship. But we use that quite frequently among us. We call that fellowship. Well, that's how they were using that term. But here's another example. This is from the uh, Shelbyville uh, area, just down the street, just less than a mile from where I live. This is the Fairlane Church of Christ from 1997. In their bulletin, they have an, an Oktoberfest. The print may be too small for you to read, but they're having a congregational barbecue on Sunday the 26th. And after services, their young men of the congregation will be speaking. Then there's going to be games and activities. Then at 5 o'clock, there'll be the barbecue. Then there's going to be this big kickoff on Sunday the 5th, October the 5th, and they'll be serving a giant banana split, so bring your own banana to the banana split party. And so this was something that they were doing among many things that they've done to try to attract a crowd. When trying to illustrate, this is where some of the concepts began with the fun and the food and the frolic. But let's talk about how far it's gone. That's not where it stopped. We mentioned Guy Woods a number of times in, our con uh, in the context of some of the controversy. 
Well, the Woods died in 1993. And just shortly before his death, he told several of our brethren that I am a man without a country. What do you mean by that? That I've got more in common with you folks than I do my own brethren because they've gone so far and so liberal. Alan Harris has told me the same thing. That I have more in common with you folks than I do my own brethren because they have gone so far and gone so liberal and doing so many things that I don't approve of anymore. As we've already mentioned, some of the churches of Christ now have instrumental music. Some of them have women preachers. More about that in just a moment. But how far has it gone? Well, this social gospel, once you open the door, there's nowhere to close it, is there? This is the Twickenham Church of Christ in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. Here is their community classes that are free to the public. There's a number of things that you can have. Here's one of the classes they're having. It's for men only. They're going to have Dr. James Flack come and talk to you about fun facts about your prostate. I'm not making that up, folks. That's what they did. But that's not all. If you're not interested in that, and you probably wouldn't be, you might want the class on, on wood carving, or maybe the one on window treatments. That, that was a little bit later. Uh, the week later, they're going to have wallpapering, and then there's a basket-making class. And this is all sponsored by the church at Twickingham. Now, once you open the door to all the social gospel, taking care of man's social needs, then where do you close the door? You can't. Well, let's go a little bit further. Same church, the Twickingham Church, Huntsville, Alabama, they're having this special uh, dinner theater play, and it is a Christmas play that they put on, and they're sponsoring that sponsored out of the church treasury, and so they're having a special dinner play. Same church, Huntsville, Alabama, Twickingham. They were the first church to have the Andy Griffith series. In fact, it was one of their deacons who put the course together, uh, who put the, uh, this course together. This is a workbook that he's put together, so you would set and watch an Andy Griffith show because there's, there's a good moral lesson in each one of those shows. And then you work through the workbook. Now that's not taking your Bible and reading Acts 2 and then working through the workbook. You watch the Andy Griffith show and then you work through the workbook and you discuss the Bible principles or the moral lesson that's there. And that's what they were having in their Bible classes. That was the first church to do that. Another church did that right over here at Tullahoma, the Cedar Lane Church of Christ. Ultra, ultra liberal church. Well, they're doing the same thing, but this is where it started at Twickingham. That's how far it's gone. It went from the church kitchen to now having the Andy Griffith shows, but that's out of date. Here's another church. The Southwest Central Church in Houston, Texas, had a class on basic auto upkeep. One of their deacons was a, a, an audible mill mechanic, and so in their fellowship hall, you see, it's not just for eating and fun. You can have classes on taking care of your car. He's going to teach you how to diagnose and take care of your electrical and air conditioning and tire alignment, et cetera, and all of the problems that you have with dealing with your car. Come because he's got 43 years' experience at, at dealing with cars, so come and the church will provide a class for you how to take care of your car. Why not? If we can provide the pizza for everybody, why can't we provide them with information of how to take care of your car? Here's another church that is the, um, the Landmark Church of Christ. Now, this is interesting. This is taken from their webpage. And their opening page shows here a picture of the church, the Landmark Life Center. It talks about a great place for those of the Landmark family and their friends bring, to come together. They have uh, a game of pool or basketball or enjoy fellowship around the television, etc. Over here, they begin to list their, they have a, a link to exercise and nutrition and to their policies, their event calendar, their volunteers and their faculties, uh, or for their facilities. Then there's activities that are available, such as a multi-purpose room, basketball, volleyball, showers and locker rooms and pool tables, ping pong tables, foosball, walking track, aerobics classes, conditioning classes, weight room, kitchen, TV lounge, and fellowship. What I didn't see there was anything about the Bible. What I didn't see anything was about a Bible class. In fact, I didn't see anything there about worship on their opening page, but you come onto their page, this is the 
the landmark church of Christ, but they have pool tables, pong, ping pong tables, they have all of the fun food and frolic, and I don't know anything about learning the Bible from them, and I doubt we'll learn very much. Well, here's another. This was a page that talks about gospel aerobics directory, where you can find your gospel. I'm not sure what that is. Greg, do you know what gospel aerobics is? I'm not sure what gospel aerobics is, but this is the gospel aerobics directory. Uh, it's a Christian church at Tempe, Arizona. You can be involved in that. But right here in Alabama, there's a church in Montgomery, the Vaughn Park Church of Christ, is offering the gospel aerobics. If you're interested in that, perhaps there's one even closer than Montgomery, Alabama. That's the kind of things they're being involved in. Here's another church, Decatur, Texas, Decatur uh, Church of Christ. They're having a mother-daughter banquet. Uh, they're having a ski trip. They're having a Valentine's Day um, activities. Uh, many of the churches, there's more about that on their web pages than you just begin to search and you find all kinds. Here's the, the Circle Church of Christ. There's their progressive dinner they're having. They have a coffee house, and they have a video scavenger hunt. Uh, all of these things to interest people and somehow get them to come. Here is the Georgetown Church of Christ, and they're having an oil change day. Now, you could have gone to the other church and learned how to do it, but uh, at this church, this is for the single mom and the widows. Oil, filter, oil and filters will be provided. One church had to bring your own banana, but here they're going to provide the oil and the oil filter for you. I like that. If you're going to do it, why not change, take that out of the church treasury and let them provide all of that for you. And then here's the Easter Day pageant along with the Christian church. They have a joint effort of the Easter Day pageant. All of that's part of this, this social gospel movement. I'm just trying to illustrate how far this has gone. Well, now this is interesting because this is the Fourth Avenue Church right over here in Franklin, Tennessee. Now that one rings a bell with me because my granddad was an elder there. And in 1952, he resigned as one of the ten elders because he felt they were getting too liberal in 1952. The other elders wouldn't listen to him. And they were practicing things that he didn't think was scriptural, and so he had to finally back away and resign and leave. I can't go along with that. Well, they've gone a long way since 1952. They were doing none of this. For example, they have uh, the senior saints luncheon. They're having a bridal uh, gift tea. They're having a teacher appreciation day. They're having a ladies' uh, night out at the hospitality house. That's just the beginning of the things that they would do. Same church. They have a softball team that's forming. They have a family night out and roller skating party. They're having another uh, thing of a church-wide picnic. By the way, that's the same church that recently introduced a woman preacher in the pulpit. No wonder. They have no regard for Bible authority. They haven't had for a long, long time. Those are the kinds of things that are going on. Here's another open car show. This is at the Garden City Church of Christ. And this is an open car show, and so you register your car, and you just want to go to a car show. This is a, nothing said about they're using this even to try to attract people to teach them the gospel. This is just a good thing to provide, just to have a car show at the expense of the church. Now here's one that's a little closer to home you might be more interested in. This is the Wilson uh, Hill Church of Christ right over here in Marshall County. This is taken from the Times-Gazette out of Shelbyville. And this is a handgun permit class that is being provided for your information and for your, your own safety. And one of the classes is being conducted by the Wilson Hill Church of Christ, or at least at their building, being provided by them. Perhaps that would interest you. Well, let's talk about where we've gone now. And I've given all of that to illustrate to you. The social gospel, once it was introduced, and you open the door, then you've opened the door for other things to come in, and you can't get the door shut. There was a time when the issues between us were the orphans on the sponsoring church and the colleges. There was a time when if someone asked you, what's the difference between this church at College View and one of the other churches that wears that name, you could have said, well, I'll tell you what our difference is. They support Orphan's Home and the sponsoring church in the colleges, and we're opposed to that. But it's far more than that now. 
It's gone now to the fellowship hall and the social programs and on and on and with other things to the point now we can say some churches are using instrumental music. They have women preachers. They have their, their car shows. They have their fun, food, and fraud, whatever you want to mention. It's all going on in the name of religion. Well, that's a little of the history behind that and what's going on. Let's talk about what the problems were, and let's open our Bibles again to Acts chapter 15. What's the problem with all of the things we've been talking about? Well, here's the first and the foremost problem. There's no Bible authority. There's no Bible authority. I ask you to turn to Acts 15. We gave attention to this Friday night in a passing reference yesterday morning. But for the benefit of those who were not here with us, I want to give just again a quick passing reference to Acts the 15th chapter and remind you of what Acts 15 is about. We need to familiarize ourselves with Acts 15 and what it says about Bible authority. The question at hand in Acts 15 was, is circumcision binding? Must Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved? When the decision was made, and it wasn't a matter of deciding what the truth is, it was determining that they might get the message back to Antioch of what the apostles said, or actually what the Holy Spirit had said on the subject. So verse 28 says that when they got through with all of the discussions in Acts 15, that the conclusion is drawn by the Holy Spirit. How did they determine what the Holy Spirit said? Well, there were three speeches that were made. I remind you, Peter makes a speech in verses 7 through 11. And he stands up and he speaks about the household of Cornelius, and here's what he said about the household of Cornelius. He said, The Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning, Cornelius being a Gentile. I inferred, I'm implying, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that at verse 19, he said, and God made no distinction between them and us. How do you know, Peter, that they, God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles? By the very fact that the Holy Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius, he necessarily inferred that. Now let's back up to verse 12, or go on down to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul and Barnabas stood up and made a speech, and they made an appeal to the example of them going among the Gentiles, preaching among the Gentiles, and God gave his stamp of approval. How do I know God approved of that? The miracles and the wonders and the signs that were done. Verse 12. So here is an example of, of approved apostolic examples. Then James made a speech, and he stood up, and he quoted from Amos 9, showing that Amos had specifically said, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name... Is a direct statement or a command from God. So they appeal to command, example, and necessary inference. That's how we have determined what the Holy Spirit says about any subject. So when it comes to the matter of the social gospel concept, the church being involved in social and recreation and entertainment, we're looking for either a command, example, or necessary inference, and we find none. We don't find a direct statement from God, the church is to be involved. We don't find an example of the church being involved, nor do we find a passage from which we can necessarily infer the church is to be involved. So without any one of the three, we have to conclude there is no Bible authority. Now we know what the Holy Spirit said about church involvement and church recreation. The Holy Spirit said nothing. He didn't give us a command. He didn't give us an example. He did not give us an inference. But I want us to go further and establish the fact that the church is not a social order, and the gospel message is not a social message, and that's not a social mission. If the church is to be involved in a social mission, then the church could be involved in the things that we've been talking about. But let's establish the fact that the church is not a social order, and the gospel is not a social gospel. Let's remind ourselves of some passages that we know well. Let's talk about the church. It is not a social order. Let's turn to Romans chapter 14, if you will, and in verse 17. 
In Romans chapter 14 and in verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, Paul said, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not food and drink. It is not a social order. Well, you remember in John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. It is not a social order. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 5, I know we're quickly hitting these passages, but they will suffice to establish our point, that we're made, uh, you're also as living stones being built up, what kind of house? A spiritual house. The church is a spiritual house, it's not of this world, it is not a food and drink, then the church is not a social order. So likewise, the gospel is not a social gospel. Well, our brother read to us a few moments ago from John chapter 6 where Jesus condemned those who would follow after him for food and drink. And he said, labor not for the meat that perishes, but that which endures into everlasting life. The gospel is not a social gospel. It is not a gospel that tries to feed all the hungry. That's not what it was about. Jesus said he was not doing that in John chapter 6. If you don't remember any other passage on this point, remember Romans 1, 16 and 17. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. To everyone that believeth the Jew first and also it to the Greek. For therein, or in it, is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, verse 17 says. Well, Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We won't take the time to develop all of those verses, but the gospel is not a social gospel. The church is not a social order. But let's go to another problem. Trying to list some of the problems we have with the social gospel. There's no Bible authority. The message is not a social message. It is a redemptive message in Christ. But furthermore, it fails to distinguish between the individual and the church. Remember the shift we talked about a moment ago? There's not only a shift from the spiritual to the social, there's a shift from the individual to the church. And it fails to distinguish between the individual and the church. The Bible talks about a distinction in the individual and in the church, and they differ in a number of ways. They differ in their work. They differ in their role. They differ in their money. And they differ in their liberties. They're not the same. When we begin to blur these lines between the individual and the church and saying things like was said in the 50s and 60s, that whatever the individual does, the church can do, then we begin to blur those lines and we're going to be in the same trouble that they were. Already among us, we have the failure to distinguish between the individual and the church. When we begin to advertise things that are advertised on the church ad as we send out ads about our meetings, and then we advertise some social things that are individual in their nature and make no distinction. We're blurring those lines, and we'll say more about that in a moment. Here's a passage we've looked at a couple of times already in this series. 1 Timothy 5.16 shows that if any man or woman that believes have widows, let them relieve them, and let not the church be charged that it may relieve those who are widows indeed. If I learn anything from the text, I'll learn the individual has some responsibility the church does not. The individual is one thing, the church is entirely something different. We need to understand that distinction. Now, they differ in their name, in their work, and in their finances. For example, how do they differ in their name? The individual wears the name Christian. Every time the term Christian is used, it's never used to reference to a group, but it has reference to an individual. Every time it's used, three times in the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 16, if any man suffer as a Christian, any man as a Christian, the disciples, plural, were called Christians, Acts eleven twenty six. One of those would be a Christian, wouldn't he? And remember Agrippa said in Acts 26, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Every time it was used, it had reference to an individual. 
the church might be referred to as a collectivity, as the church of Christ. The plurality of churches were called churches of Christ. Romans 16, 16, one of them would be a church of Christ. I'm not called a church of Christ, nor is this church called a Christian. There's a difference in their name. They differ in their work. We saw that in 1 Timothy 5. The individual takes care of his widow, but the church takes care of those who are widows indeed. They differ in their finances. An individual could buy and sell for gain. We saw that yesterday in James 4 and verse 13. But a church receives its money by a free will offering. We need to understand they are distinct in a number of ways. But let's add this to the problems that we began to list about what's wrong with the social gospel concept. There's no authority. It's not a social message. It fails to distinguish the individual in the church, but it adds to the work of the church. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 12. Let's talk about Ephesians 4 and verse 12. We talked about this yesterday, our, our uh, Friday evening, I think it was. There are other passages that talk about the work of the church, but Ephesians 4 and in verse 12 summarizes the work of the church in one text. Paul says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body, or for the edifying of the body of Christ. In that one text, I find three things, the equipping of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. You recall from our studies on Friday evening that we talked about the equipping of the saints means to repair, to put in order. That has to do with the work of edification. We have the matter of the work of ministry. That word is used of benevolence. That's talking about the church's work in benevolence. The edifying has to do with the building up of the body by teaching and increasing in number. That has to do with evangelism. So the church is to be involved in edification, benevolence, and in evangelism. And when we have the church involved in social and recreational matters, we've added to the work of the church something that's neither edification, it is not benevolence, nor is it evangelism, nor is it a tool to accomplish any one of those. But now let's talk about kitchens and eating in the building. And that'll be our study for tonight and wind this series up. Let's talk about kitchens and eating in the building. One of the questions that came to play in all of this social gospel concept was, can the church have a church kitchen, a fellowship hall, and can the church put on a dinner or provide a place for a dinner? And one of the things that someone would say in those days is, what's the difference in this church and that? Well, they have a church kitchen and we do not. Well, what was the question and what was the issue about the, the question of eating in the building? Let's talk about what that issue was. Let's talk about the use of the kitchen. We're not talking about a place to prepare the Lord's Supper. There have been churches, whether you think it's expedient or not, or whether you think it's wise or not, that in the building of their facilities, they may put a kitchen in, basically what looks like a kitchen, a place where they could prepare the Lord's Supper and wash the trays and see to all of that. We're not talking about that kind of thing. I don't know if anybody that objected to that. And nor was that the question at hand. That wasn't the issue that divided the church in the 60s and the 70s. Nor was it a place to wash the trays. There are a number of churches that put in a big sink somewhere so that they can wash the trays and take care of the church trays for the Lord's Supper. Nor are we even talking about a place for taking care of needy saints. I suppose a church could be large enough that it would have a number of, of needy saints where there may be some of the deacons and their wives may have to prepare some food to take care of those needy saints. That wasn't the question. That wasn't what we're talking about in the issue of a church kitchen. What we were talking about was the church providing a place for meals for social and recreational purposes. That's an important distinction. The question was, can the church provide in its fellowship hall or family life centers or their multi-purpose buildings, whatever they call them, can the church provide a place for meals for social and recreational purposes? 
I don't want a place to, to prepare the Lord's Supper or feed needy saints or to take care of needy saints. We're talking about a place where the church could provide meals for social and recreational purposes. And that was the idea of a church kitchen and the fellowship hall and the multi-purpose building, etc., that they had. Now let's talk about this distinction. When we're talking about eating in the church building, the question never was, is the building sacred? Some of our own brethren who came out of that, in fact, I was telling Greg the other night that we had a, a study several years ago with a young couple. The young man was raised in the church, and she was raised in a liberal-minded church. We're trying to teach her the difference, and he kept telling her it's wrong to eat in the building, but he didn't understand what was wrong with eating in the building or the whole concept of the issue. And somewhere he got the concept of us preaching against the concept of, of eating in the building, that the issue was you can't eat inside the, the doors of the building. If you need to eat, you eat outside, outside the door. You can eat in the parking lot, but you can't eat here in the building. Because we believe it would be wrong to eat in the building. And you ask him why, is that? well, he didn't know why, but that's just what we've always been taught. Well, let's understand what the issue was. The issue was not, was the building sacred? Nobody believed that. The question was not, can one eat inside the building? No one opposed taking a bite of food inside the building. The question was not, can one eat on church property? That wasn't the question. That happens quite often. Someone cleaning the building brings their lunch, and they eat their lunch right here. Maybe in painting the building, you might eat your lunch. I do a great deal of carpentry work and help build the building we're in, and, and we ate our lunch many times right there on the platform while we're building the structure. The preacher may bring his lunch and eat it in his office at the church, but no one opposed eating inside the building. In fact, a number of years ago, we had a, a young lady who, when maybe just 10 or 15 people were left, went out to her car and got a cookie to eat, and she was still taking a bite as she came through the door, and someone stopped her and said, you have to eat that outside. We don't believe in eating in the building. <laughs> well, that wasn't the issue. It wasn't that it was right outside the door, but if she stepped inside the door, it was wrong. No one questions eating some food inside the building. That wasn't the question. The question was, can the church have a common meal for social and recreational purposes? That was the issue of the, the social gospel concept. And that's what brethren were divided over. Can the church take out of its treasure and provide a place for common meals for social and recreational purposes? I want you to see that common meals are individual matters. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Common meals are individual matters. That is not a matter of the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there was a discussion of the Lord's Supper. There was an abuse of the Lord's Supper, that is true. But there was more than an abuse of the Lord's Supper. Because Paul didn't just say, quit abusing the Lord's Supper. But if you're making a common meal out of the Lord's Supper, that's something you do in your home. Let's begin reading at verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in, one eating, for in eating, one taketh before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Are you reading with me verse 22? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, and despise you the church of God, and put to shame those who have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. What I want you to see is this involves far more than just an abuse of the Lord's Supper. He said if you're making a common meal out of the Lord's Supper, that's something you do at home. You have your common meal at home. That's an individual matter, not a matter of the church. Not a matter that is a work of the church. The church takes out of its treasure and provides a place for social and recreational purposes. There is no authority for the church to be involved in the social and the recreational matters. We've already talked about command, example, and necessary inference. I just want to establish the fact that there is no command, there is no example, there's no necessary inference that would authorize the church to arrange and support for a common meal for social and recreational purposes. If so, where would that passage be? 
There's not a passage in the New Testament that says anything about the church taking out of its treasury and providing meals for social and recreational purposes. Not one word in the New Testament. I think we do an injustice when we press people to tell them, show us where there is a kitchen or a fellowship hall in the New Testament. That's not the question. The question is the meals for social and recreational purposes. We'll come back to that in a moment. I want you to see that aids are authorized within the command. Let's take, for example, the matter of eating the Lord's Supper. God gave us the command to eat bread. Now, when we use a table or plate, such as you have here and have used this morning, that's simply an aid that helps you carry out the command. I don't have to find a plate or a table in the New Testament. That simply aids me in carrying out the command. Where is the Bible authority for the table and the plates? That comes within the command of eating bread. I'm doing nothing more than what God has authorized. Well, the same thing with being baptized. I don't have to find a baptistry. You might ask, where is the Bible authorized? A baptistry in the New Testament. And I notice on the church budget you bought a heater to put into the, into the, to the baptistry to heat the water. Where does the Bible mention anything about a heater? I don't have to find that in the New Testament. That's authorized within the command to baptize. We're doing nothing more than what God said. When Noah built an ark, I find nothing about God telling which tool or which animal to drag the, the building supplies to the building site. But that was authorized within the command to build an ark, Genesis 6.14. Singing, the same thing. We don't have to find books mentioned in the Bible or tuning forks or projectors and electronic hymnals. That's all authorized within the command to sing. The same thing with contribution. You might use a bank account or a basket. And if the church is authorized to have meals for social and recreational purposes, then we can use kitchens and fellowship halls, can't we? I don't have to find the kitchen or fellowship hall in the Bible. What needs to be found in the Bible, what we've got to find, and the question is, where is the authority for the church to involve itself in meals for social and recreational purposes? That's what we've got to find. I'm not looking for a specific mention of the kitchen. I'm looking for where the church is authorized to have meals for social and recreational purposes. And when we find that, then we'll give them the kitchen and the fellowship hall. That would be authorized, wouldn't it? We can't find the Bible authority for this right here. It's the basic principle that can't be found. Not the kitchen that can't be found. It's the very basic principle that we can't find for the church to be involved in things that are matters of recreational and social purposes. I want to remind you that this is not the work of the church. But that we're simply talking about, we've talked about the work of the church is involved in evangelism, edification, and benevolence. We saw that from Ephesians 2. If that wasn't clear, you might write these passages down. The church is to be involved in evangelism, 1 Timothy 3.15. It may edify itself in love, Ephesians 4.16. Involved in benevolence, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16. Social and recreational is something different from those three. So where is the passage that authorizes that? We have none. That's not the work of the church. When we have a church kitchen... It is not the work of evangelism. If so, how is it? How is providing a social meal the work of evangelism? It is not the work of edification. Nor is it the work of benevolence. We're not talking about providing benevolence. We're talking about a, so a meal for social and recreational purposes. It's not the work of evangelism. It's not the work of edification. It's not the work of benevolence. Well, finally, let's make this point and we'll be done. Let's understand that there is a difference in incidentals and things that are planned. Talking about eating in a building. You might incidentally eat while you're cleaning the building, while you're working in your office, if you're the preacher, while you're painting the walls, or duplicating CDs through the week, whatever the case may be. There's a difference in things that are incidental while we're at the building and things that are planned. For example, while we're at the building, we might talk about politics. I imagine some discussions go on in the vestibule about politics as the, the year increases toward the election year, won't it? does where I preach. 
We might talk about who's the favorite candidate of this party or that party. Who do you think will win? What do you think his policies will be? What do you think he'll do? And, or what will she do, etc. There's nothing wrong with, incidentally, talking about politics. Or you might do something incidentally like sell or deliver an item. I might walk out here and talk to Greg and he likes my truck and I'll make a deal and he buys my truck. And then I might tell him I'll bring it back to you Wednesday night and deliver it here at the building. At our Wednesday night, anything wrong with that? Not at all. I might seek medical advice. We have a couple of nurses in the church and quite often at services we go over and ask, what do you think about this problem? What would you do if you had this problem? Who would you go see? We seek medical advice. You might even eat on the property, incidentally, while you're working on something at the building. But that's a far cry from the church planning, for example, a political rally. Because we talk about politics in the vestibule, does that mean the church can authorize, is authorized to have a political rally here? That's a big difference, isn't it? Can you see the difference? And we might buy and sell something at the building, incidentally, but that's the difference in the church going into business of buying and selling cars. If, if I could sell Greg my truck, could, could we set up a car lot here and the church be in the business? Not at all. And seeking medical advice is far cry from the church being involved in the hospital or clinic and eating on the property is a far cry from a church kitchen and a dinner. Well, incidentally, eats on the building while they happen to be at the building mowing the grass or cleaning the building or whatever it may be. The issue is not, is it wrong to eat in the building? The question was, is it for social and recreational purposes? Any more than because we can talk about politics, we can have a political rally here. Those things don't work. What have we seen? We've seen this concept of the social gospel, the history behind it, the problems with it, and then focused our attention on the kitchens, the fellowship halls, and eating in the building. Time would forbid us to go much further and talk about any other of the problems that, of the blurring of the lines, but I do want to issue this warning. I'm not, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. But I may live to see the day, but I think my children will live to see the day when we'll see another major apostasy like we've been talking about. When you look at the things, it was the prelude to the 1800s. And then what the prelude was to the 1950s, what was going on in the 30s and the 40s, even in the 20s and 30s and 40s, before the division hit in the 50s. It's very similar to some of the attitudes we're seeing among our brethren today. Remember we quoted Cogdell yesterday, who said there were a number of churches that in the 1930s would agree that premillennialism is wrong, but don't preach on it here because we don't want to hear that kind of preaching, and every one of those churches went into apostasy. We have that same kind of spirit among us. There's a danger of shifting emphasis from the spiritual to the social. That's happening among us. That's happening among, I'm, when I mean among us, I'm talking about among non-institutional churches of Christ. There's a shifting from an emphasis from the spiritual to the social. Where sometimes the emphasis is greater on what's being, than what's being taught in the pulpit of how socially minded the people are within a church. And there have been brethren who've told me that they would rather attend somewhere where the preaching may be softer, the elders may not be doing their job, but brethren socialize more there. That's more important to them. We're shifting from the spiritual to the social. We're blurring the lines between the individual and the church, all the time saying that this is not a work of the church, but we're blurring those lines to the point that will be erased at some point among us. We're letting up on emphasis of authority in some churches. There's a softer approach in many circles to dealing with sin, with dealing with issues, with dealing with problems. And we're setting the pace and we're setting the atmosphere for another major apostasy to come and it's going to go down the same kind of lines. We'll see parallels to what happened in the 1800s, what happened in the 1950s, and it'll happen again if we don't stay tuned to what's going on. Because the very same kind of things, if we're not careful, will be involved in the social gospel, 
will be involved in the church-sponsored things that are contrary to the Scriptures because we didn't do our homework and we didn't do our preparation and we didn't warn the next generation. There could arise a generation that does not know God. It happened in the days of Joshua. It could happen in our own day and time. I appreciate your attention to all these studies this weekend. Hopefully that's been helpful to you as we think about things that happened in the past as we reflect on the future. We'll get your hymn books and our turn to the number if you're following in your hymn book to the invitation song that has been announced. We're going to stand and sing a song of invitation to encourage you to respond to the gospel. If you're not a Christian, would you become one tonight? Or maybe there's an erring child of God who needs to make correction. If any way you're subject to the gospel invitation, would you come as we, together we stand in that while we sing?